0: Welcome to Open to Explore, the FBC Athens podcast exploring conversations at the intersection of faith and life. When you hear the words Bible study, what comes to mind? Do you anticipate the next description to be the word fun? If not, why not? We invite you to open your mind and consider a new approach to reading scripture together with others. The approach was developed by Anna Carter Florence, the Peter Marshall Professor of Preaching at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Her book, Rehearsing Scripture, is subtitled Discovering God's Word in Community. Frank Granger and Emily Harbin, ministers at FBC Athens, Georgia, ask Dr. Carter Florence what inspired this method of reading and studying scripture. Together with Dr. Carter-Florence, they discuss this playful yet respectful approach to Bible study. We invite you to fall in love with Scripture. Hello? Anna Carter-Florence. Yes. This is Frank Granger. Hi, Frank. Thanks for joining us today uh, to talk about your book, Rehearsing Scripture. Um, I'm glad to be here. Before we get into that, though, we know that you are an author, obviously, and we know that you are a professor at Columbia Seminary, but I know that there's a lot more to the story. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your
1: background. Sure, and thank you for the question. I am not from the Deep South. I have a lot of family that has roots here, but I grew up in New England, ended up there because of my father's work. He was a professor at Yale Medical School and my mother was a poet and so I grew up in New England in in Connecticut and went to Yale University for college seminary was not at all the thing that was on my radar although I've got presbyterian ministers in every generation of my family but after college I was in a singing group, an acapella cappella singing group, and we went on a trip to Asia to sing for lots of different venues. And I had a, a moment during that trip when I felt now I have language for it, then I didn't have any language for it. A call to go to seminary, came home and shared it with my parents. I think my mother cried. <laughs> was, um, that, was that and, familiar? Yeah, <laughs> not but, in a good way. Not in no, a good way. I mean, okay. they, yeah, they became very supportive. I think they were worried because <laughs> I grew up in a place where an evangelical expression of of church or an identity in that way is not something that was part of my upbringing. And in my little town, so I embarked on this adventure going to seminary. I did take one year to work in a nonprofit. I worked for UNICEF to see if that might be what God was calling, and it wasn't. So I went to seminary. And uh, my first year, I remember thinking, all right, I'm here, um, but I'm never going to be ordained. And the second year, I thought, well, maybe I'll be ordained, but (laughs) I'm never going to work in a church. And the third year, I thought, well, I guess I'm good do that so it was an evolving thing it was really an evolving thing i also happened to meet my husband um having gone to seminary made a vow to never date anybody who um was a seminarian and you know those things just sort of god has a big sense of humor um it sounded like you
0: had quite a number of things that you said were not going to happen when you went and and it just didn't turn out quite that way
1: it really didn't
0: but what happened in between? How did you get from going to seminary and graduating to actually teaching in seminary?
1: David, my husband and I graduated from Princeton Seminary in 1988. <laughs> By this point, I had joined a Presbyterian church, and women were not getting jobs. So even though we, there was a lot of inclusion on campus when it came to church jobs, that wasn't quite the way. And I ended up receiving a call to Westminster Presbyterian Church in Minneapolis. It was a wonderful, wonderful place to learn. I was the Associate Minister for Youth and Young Adults. There were six pastors on staff, including a colleague, another associate pastor, who was a woman in her 60s. And I can tell you, in the 1980s, that never happened. Her name was Elizabeth Heller. She had graduated from McCormick Seminary in 1950. So I had this rich set of role models and all kinds of things to help me learn. It was a wonderful five years and we loved it. But I began to realize that my real interest, probably I would say calling, was teaching. In 1993, we came East. I had one person I wanted to study with and that was Tom Long. And so that um, make, that's that where he had. That makes hands- sense. Yeah, and the, that, was, that was the person I wanted to work with. So we went back, and we were there in New Jersey for five years. As I was finishing up the program or getting towards the close, there happened to be a job open in the South, in, in the Atlanta area, Columbia Seminary. And it was another kind of a, something I said I would never do. When David and I were thinking about where we might go, he's from Virginia, and he said, you know, we should think about Atlanta that is a really great metropolitan area. And I said, read my lips. <laughs> I will never live in the South. It wasn't because I didn't love or have family members who work Southern. I, But I was a kind of a lack of imagination. I didn't think that I didn't think I would be accepted. I didn't think that what I had to bring would be something that might be able to be received. But thank God that God just looks at those moments and, shakes the head and says, yeah, well, let's just get on with it.
0: That's quite a journey.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm really grateful for my life.
0: Let's shift just a little bit. Tell us what inspired you to write this
1: book. Well, the book began as a set of lectures, actually. I was invited to give the Lyman Beecher Lectures at Yale Divinity School in 2012, and as I was thinking about what I wanted to say then, I thought the thing I really want to bring is some of this amazing learning I've experienced I've had with students when we have brought some different kinds of teaching into the classroom. So I wanted to um, share in those lectures some of the process uh, that was outlined in the book of just doing a slow reading. What happens when you deliberately stop looking for the right answer and begin to listen for truth. And what are some of the ways that we can do that together that will bring joy into the process? I find that when pastors come back for continuing education events, I sometimes feel like I'm doing marital counseling with them in the text and scripture because everybody's just exhausted and they're so tired. And I understand it because weariness is a really hard thing. So to bring joy and freshness back into the process to help people remember why they found love of Scripture in the first place, and then to try to give them methods that will work, that they can take with them, that they can do every week. And then, not just on their own, I think a preaching life is most sustained when pastors find ways to read Scripture with the congregation. So I had a number of things I wanted to do in those lectures that became the book. I wanted to lift up what I thought were some fresh reading approaches. I wanted to share some of what had been happening in my classrooms because of those approaches. And I wanted to suggest that rehearsing Scripture, looking for the script, our script in the Scripture, is really what we're doing when we read a text. We're coming to this scriptural text imagining that there might be a lot of possibilities, but only if we are brave enough to kind of try them. You know, not just think about them, but try them, do them out loud, move our bodies. You know, do the kinds of theater things we did um, when I was back in college, blocking the text or improv it or, or just taking a risk to see what truth might pop up or what fragments or flashes of truth might pop up that we can follow. Those seemed to me like things that needed to happen. When I travel around and teach... The biggest hunger I feel in people, whether they're church folk or preachers and pastors themselves, or even people who aren't in the church but are interested in Scripture, the biggest hunger I feel is to read the Word of God and feel addressed, to feel like there's a place for you, to feel like you have something to bring to the process and you're not stupid for asking a question or you're not right or wrong, you are with the people of God searching to be faithful, to live in the world, to live out the Scripture in the world, and to find ways to do that so that the reign of God will break in.
2: Anna, you said something about being able to fall in love with Scripture. That really resonates with me. I actually preached my first sermon in a congregation before I had taken a preaching course. But it was in that sermon preparation that I really did learn to fall in love with Scripture and just play with it and ask deep questions. And your book asks us the same thing. It helps us to play with Scripture and not be afraid of it, just to pick it up and have fun with it. But I think your book, for preachers but also for lay people, gives us an opportunity to dive in and rehearse it.
1: Well, here's my particular bias. Everybody comes with certain perspectives and blindnesses, and maybe one of my blindnesses is that I grew up thinking, taking for granted that there were a lot of ways to interpret things. I think for many people, we have been shaped sometimes in communities that have believed there might only be one way to read a text. There might be only one way to interpret Scripture. It's partly the American public school system. We, you know, our kids are often given multiple choice tests where they get to choose the right answer. So we're used to coming up with the right answer. We're not as good, I think, at imagining that there could be complexity and a lot of ways to hear um, and interpret. So I've sensed in students a kind of anxiety to come up with the right way to read a certain passage of Scripture.
0: You mentioned this a little bit earlier that we are really oriented to find the right answer Mm. and to please people with the right answer. How do you free us from that typical perspective and approach to step over and just play with the text?
1: Well, I use the image of where the wild things are that children's book by Maurice Sendak in, in the book. And the reason I do is that the thing, I, the image I love in that book is that Max, the child sails away to this Island where the wild things are. And then he leaves, right? So it's a temporary little holding space. One thing I like about rehearsal I and mean, always did I actually liked rehearsing a play more than performing it is it's this kind of um, holding space to try lots of things. So the first thing I realized is that people just need to know that they're in a they're they're just going to a little island where the wild things are for a little while, right? They don't have to live there permanently. We're just going to go and try some things for an hour. So having a limit, having a structure to that was important. Encouraging people, actually asserting to them, you know, saying, "Look, you need a you need to have at least a little space and time." where anything is possible. And later, we're going to move toward articulating a meaning and trying to say what we think we heard in the text, but there needs to be at least this time of complete openness. So that was first. And then the second is, because I'm a very practical person, I'm a practical theologian, I needed to have a process that wouldn't overwhelm people. And hopefully, one that would allow everybody a seat at the table, whether they had been reading the Bible for years, whether they'd never opened it, whether they were 10 years old, whether they were 80, whether they had a PhD in theology, whether they had never gotten a GED, you know, finished high school. I wanted a place where everyone could be valued and could offer something. And you have to frame that then, right? You can't ask, what does this mean? You have to break down the pieces so that people can think about what they know. And that's how the reading the verbs began to happen. I needed to find a method that would focus people quickly and be big enough and inclusive enough to give everybody a chance to say something. That was one half of it. The other half of it was just that my students were driving me crazy, and they were talking <laughs> about everything. They just wanted to say everything about the text and their sermons. I'd end up hearing sermons that sounded more like they'd written them as a paper. Exegetical um, thing. So I had to find a way to rein them in and have them focus deeply so they didn't go off on tangents about the Jebusites and et cetera. So this became a way to give everybody a starting point. I also realized, and I talk about this in the book, that where we really get off track in Scripture is we get so intimidated by all those nouns. There are so many things in Scripture we don't understand. The world is ancient. It's far away. It's a universe, a galaxy far away. It requires a lot of translation, right? Because we don't know what all these things are. And that's where people tend to get intimidated. And I realized that when we enter scripture nouns first, there's just never a way that it's going to meet our world. We're going to have room to say, this is not relevant to me. Well, I think scripture is incredibly relevant. So I've invited people to start from the other end, start with a verb because verbs are just human. Um, You may not have shekels and cubits and concubines and Jebusites in your neighborhood, but you know (laughs) what a verb is. And the verbs you have are the same verbs that the characters in Scripture have. So let's start focusing on those. And as we read with precision, yet with some freedom, things will evolve. And so that's, that's what happened. When I first started doing this, what I found was, Incredibly powerful things were happening. If you gave people a chance to go deep into the text and offer up possibilities where it may have intersected in their own lives, everybody had something to say. Plus, it was hugely fun. Um, I think Bible study is not fun. If something's wrong. If we go to a Bible study and all we have is someone who talks at us, that's not a that's not a Bible study. That's that's a lecture. Yes. So I wanted it to be participatory. I, wanted, I also wanted people to have the tools to say where the Spirit was living in them, where in their life, where God was speaking to them in their life. Now, you all, Baptists are much better at this than my tribe. Presbyterians um, <laughs> would be very happy to sit quietly and never say a word. And this is why I think it's important to say this word to the world right now. I wanted people to have a sense of joy and pride and ownership about being addressed. I think Scripture addresses us. Um, But if we don't have uh, language for that or permission for that or ways to talk about that, we won't test drive them out in the world. We're going to let the preachers do all the talking.
0: We are getting ready to rehearse some Scripture, to use your term, with some small groups here in the church for a few weeks. This will be brand new for our people we think that they're going to really enjoy it. Take a few minutes here and just lay out how it works for people well, who have never done this before. How, how do you read the verbs? How does that work?
1: Well, first of all, can I just say how thrilled I am that you all are doing this? One of the things I didn't mention before is that I think this way of reading Scripture lets people come together with others that they thought they would completely disagree with across the board, which is another way of saying I think you can get together with people from lots of different denominations around the table, people who, you know, vote differently, think differently, probably read scripture differently, but it gives everybody a place to talk. And I am so excited that your church is wanting to experiment with this. What I hope will happen and what I tried to do in the book, I tried to give sort of step-by-step instructions, is I hope these small groups will... Get together around a table or on Zoom or however we do that these days. Have a a passage of scripture in front of them. What I like to do is print it out in big letters. Give everybody a copy so we're all starting from the same place. And then just know that you're going to spend the next hour together asking a lot of questions you might not ask in other places. What I do is I ask the group, first of all, whatever the group is, to read the whole text um, all the way through. Each person reads one verse. I like hearing lots of different voices. I think it's I think it's important. And when we get to the end of the passage, we take a deep breath. We go back to the beginning. We start with the first verse. Again, one person reading a verse at each time. And we talk about the verbs. I tell them, here's what I want you to listen for. I want you to listen for who gets what verbs. Who gets what verbs? And what is the order of these verbs? I often say that one of the things I love about Scripture is that it's a given. You know, it's it's published, it's here, it's in this form. So we have to deal with it. We don't have to like it, we don't have to agree with it, but we have (laughs) to make meaning, right? We have to make meaning in some way, instead of always having someone else set the meaning for us. That can be a wonderful discipline, to have to deal with what's there and listen so we'll go through and we'll lift up a verse. I have a lot of questions I often ask who got that verb. What do you think that means? What is that? What do you think of when you hear that? Like and what, when you what did we, this
0: with us on a Zoom call,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: you would make note as well of whether a verb was present tense or past tense or future yeah. tense and, yeah. and, and really pull out some of those implications by talking about the tense of the verb.
1: Yeah, the English teachers in the room are always really excited because, um, <laughs> you know, that's what matters, right? In the book, I talk about—I do a slow reading, of kind of a demo of the third chapter of Genesis, when Adam and Eve are in the garden and the snake offers them her, the fruit, and I walk through two verses. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So we begin with the first verb in that sequence, were opened. It belongs to the man and the woman. Their eyes were opened. And were opened is a passive mood. It's very different to say you open your eyes than to say your eyes are opened. Something else does that for you. Those kinds of nuances mean something. And what we're trying to do as we slow down and talk about all these things is think about when was the last time your eyes were open in the big way that Adam and Eve's eyes were. We're trying to think about our own lives and think about how we know these. And in the, in the process of sharing some of these insights or these things that are coming to us, together as a group, we're building up, what would I want to say? Well, we're entering the script. We're entering the script of the text. And we're finding our own script in it. We're finding that there are all these stories that are laid out there, stories that we've lived and know something about. Or if we haven't lived, that one day we will, because that's the way life works. So we find our life there. And I think that's what happens is we get to slow down.
0: That is something I've very much noticed in doing this as a group, is we really slow down with the text. Usually we're reading a text to the end and then trying to decide what does it mean. And this experience slowed us down and slowed me down to really look at specific things as they came along.
2: Is falling in love with Scripture. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Just yeah. really
2: enjoying it.
1: It's fun, right? And, yeah. and it, is, it can and be hilarious. It can be heartbreaking. I think one of the things I... Just realizing new every time is how important it is to have a lot of people in the room, other voices, because people are going to hear different things yeah. than than we do.
0: You mentioned a little bit earlier that a part of this playful mood and playful time, rehearsing the text and exploring the text, that there's a second step to lead toward really making some meaning and finding some meaning. Mm in reading that chapter in your book that talks about the six questions. Mm -hmm. That's really like a second step in this process. Tell us about what those six questions are and what the purpose of those questions is.
1: I developed those because of the peculiar vocation that I have. You know, I teach preaching. So my students, in the end, by definition, are looking for something to say, right? They're reading the text in order to speak. I also believe that the text addresses every single one of us to give us something to say. So it isn't just preachers who need to be brought to speech about all these things. Right. But my students really were helpful in teaching me because they they were really good at school, and they were really good at, at kind of faking it and putting together something that looked good. So, for example, I was taught when I did preaching in Tom Long's textbook, The Witness of Preaching, I was taught to look for the, what you might think of as the main idea or the main claim that the text has on you, mm-hmm. the focus, right? What's the focus? What is the main thing you're trying to say here? And what is, you, what is it that you hope it will do? And my students could come up with really good answers to those questions. And I would say, Great, that really works. It comes right from the text. I can hear it. Do you believe it? And they would say, Well, not really. And <laughs> I thought, a okay, this is like the problem. a
2: churchy answer.
1: Yeah, they would They would. Um, they would say something that was doctrinally true, yeah. but that they hadn't necessarily um, that that hadn't necessarily been given them that day, yeah. <laughs> or that even they necessarily believed. Another way of saying it is that they were all really good at talking about the text, <laughs> but it, it it let them hold it in an arm's distance. So I had to think of a way, had to come up with some questions to help them really take seriously that, no, this is actually, you know, Scripture passes over your body and it leaves a mark. So what was that when we did this process? So we have this really great, fun time, um, for me it's always fun, of reading the verbs and everything's sort of possible. And then we get to a point where I say, okay, so now the time has come where we're to take seriously that the Spirit has been among us and it's given each of us a gift in this reading. It has landed on your shoulder in a particular way, and it's knocking on your shoulder. It's going to keep doing that until you see what it has to show you, which is my way of saying, think back to the time we just had together reading, and what's the thing that's really sticking with you? What is the moment that is thrilling you or bothering you or still troubling you or questioning you, the one that doesn't leave you? And I really think that that moment is the spirit's way of getting our attention. And our job is to pay attention. That's the seed that I want to plant. That's what I want people to follow. And then the questions um, evolve from there. Okay. So why do you think it has caught your attention? this way? That's a way of thinking about what's going on in your life that makes it seem to resonate so strongly. And then because, sermons are not about us, sermons are about God. So the third question makes that kind of clear. So what is it you know about God from this moment that's getting you in the text? Asking us to say something about who, who God is. God's the star of the show in Scripture. People, they may not be talking about God, but God is the one who's moving in all the details. And then because sermons are addressed to people, we have to ask the fourth question, which is, you've seen something that's been powerful for you, and it's shown you one thing about who God is, why would you want to say this to your people today? Why does it matter? Because if it doesn't matter, shut up, don't say it. There's plenty of noise out there. (laughs) So that's a way of thinking about the immediacy and the urgency. So those are the four questions, first of all, that we have to ask, I think, in order to make sure that Scripture has really passed over our bodies, and we have seen and paid attention to it which is what slowing down is all about. And then the fifth and sixth questions are just the ones that we could have started with, but now are going to be different. So what's the focus of what you want to say? What's the main idea? And what do you think it'll do? You can jump to those, but if you do, it's a whole lot easier to fake it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Give the Sunday school answer.
1: (laughs) Yeah. To just say something correct rather than something that's true.
2: I love this method and I love that the six questions come not until you have truly played with, encountered, discovered scripture together because oh. working with youth now in two separate churches, can I tell you the number of times where we have sat down and read a passage of scripture and then I look at these bright eyed seventh graders and say, what stands <laughs> out to you? Crickets, Mm. nothing, because they've not truly encountered it just from one read through. Nothing stands out to them. And I didn't quite get that until I had the experience of doing this in class with you.
1: The crickets that you're hearing are, their eyes are glazing over because they don't have Syrophoenetians. Um, at school (laughs) with them and, and, and they don't know how to pronounce it and it just makes you feel like this is stupid so I think a teacher's job I think a faithful person's job is to help us just take a tiny slice of it none of us can stand seeing an entire thing sometimes we have to focus in we have to be given the structure and the discipline of something very small to begin with gardens grow slowly and you plant seeds one at a time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a process.
1: And especially right now, I will say this. I think one of the things I have really noticed in myself and in my students, and basically people I love during the season of pandemic, of multiple pandemics, is our attention spans are really fractured. The work of being human right now takes so much energy. And there's not a lot left over. And to have to think more about something huge when all of these huge things are before us every day, our mortality, fate of our democracy, fate of the planet, all of these things, these huge global matters. We can't take one more huge, an invitation to do something else in the same way. So to give us a way to focus and start small in a way that promises joy, feels more important to me than ever. Thank you
0: for listening to Open to Explore and our conversation with Anna Carter-Florence. Our next episode includes additional conversation about our book. For more information about our church, visit our website at firstbaptistathens.org.